0: Hello, world hey. Hi hi hello. hi, hi hello. hello Hi. It's like I've forgotten how to say hello. <laughs> everyone and welcome to this week's episode of life with Kaka, the show where i sit down with producers from all corners of the entertainment industry to understand who we are what we do and why we love it so much i'm your host and fellow producer carolina Groppa. this week on the show i sat down with vp of physical production at paramount pictures matthew ferrante fun fact, this conversation was recorded all the way back in January. So listening to it and editing it now in November really felt like a time capsule. And it got me thinking, it's actually a really good time to reflect on resolutions and goals that you may have set. And if you are a goal setter, I'm curious, how are those goals shaping up for you now in November of 2019? And if they're not going, what can you do differently? No, I'm seriously asking for myself. So drop me a line, tell me what you're doing, tell me what's working. I'm at Carolina Gropa, the show's at Life with Kaka. But back to the present moment, I'm very excited to give you guys a peek behind the curtain of what life is like for a studio executive. Matt has been at Paramount Pictures for six years, and before that, he was at Warner Brothers for many years. So he has a very unique perspective, having been in the physical production department of both studios. So in this hour, we'll tackle how a movie gets greenlit, how being at a studio allowed him to be a family man, and how Carrie Russell, of all people, encouraged him to keep going. So, without further ado, let's hear from Matt.
1: so funny because I'll get the question pretty often from my own family even of, so what exactly do you do? And, you know, people look at the credits on a movie and see... There's a producer, an executive producer, an associate producer, and a co-producer, and they don't know what to make, uh, how to make sense of that. And from the studio side, it's interesting because you know, unless you're at you know a, a smaller studio or a mini-major or something like that, you may not even be getting a credit on uh, on on those crawls in the main or the end titles. And so for for us that are in house at some of the studios, we might have. A, a general production executive title or you'll see on imdb executive in charge of production or uh, you know you have your actual titles vp you know vp senior vp evp or any of those kind of titles in in physical production and it it you know it kind of runs the gamut in terms of what yeah what it means and and one of the things that that i'll find in my experience is mostly at the the major studios so i spent a long time at, at warner brothers and now a long time at Paramount as well, so I can have a little bit of comparison between how those two systems work. Um, you know, but but each of the studios is is different as well. And um, fortunately, in my experience, I've been lucky enough to be able to to you know get great experience and learning what physical production is and how how that functions and how we best support our filmmakers and a particular project. Um, but there's also been many major growth opportunities, and uh, most recently at uh, at Paramount, I've been able to go from a coordinator on a desk doing mostly administrative uh work and, and assisting to um, a uh, the senior manager position, which mm-hmm. which we have, and a lot of the other majors have those. Is kind of, also a junior? A junior? Manager? it's Exactly, okay. like a, a junior executive type position. Got it, and got those it. are ones that, at least the way it works at at Paramount, those uh, managers or senior managers in that role will support the entire slate of movies, um, in a policy and procedure type way or asset management type way. And really being in the weeds on a lot of, a lot of, uh, um, the, the fine details with getting a production set up and then ramping a production down when, when it wraps. Um, there are a lot of things that the folks in the production office might not see, which is how are we defining, um, Consistently across all of our movies, the way we deal with um, with unions or with um, the Humane Society or um, you know any number of other of the the you know production mechanisms, managing mm-hmm. a, a um, you know production manual so that we can hand that over to our production and say this is the way we do it here and anybody who's been in a production office will know it's very different when they go from a a Paramount production to a Sony production to a Disney production. And, and um, you know, so it's helpful when we can kind of put that in writing and say, this is the way we like it done. And, and when they get a few days into filming, we might be saying, okay, now as far as rap goes, here are all the other expectations we have. (laughs) And that helps them know, okay, well here's what I'm expected to hand off when we wrap. And, and in, Six months or a year or even two years after we wrap, we might be getting questions about what was done on day thirty-five of shooting and need to reference it. So that's what the the senior managers and, and managers will do in in those roles. And um, then to be able to make the the jump to VP, which really works in concert with our you know, creative um, uh, executives. And and when they turn to us and say, "Can we make a movie for a price?" We'll look at it and say yes we can and this is how we recommend doing it or no we can't are the changes we need to look at to get it for a price um and and that's the, the the role that i'm in right now
0: and so is there a next level to
1: so a lot of the growth at this point for me and what i'm most excited about in the role is is being able to develop my skills and, and right now a lot of the titles that i've been focused on are the you know low budget, um, maybe five, 10, $20 million titles. And eventually I can grow into movies that are 50 million or a hundred million yeah. or, or bigger doing those, those temple movies. And it's developing relationships with particular filmmakers, learning new ways of, of doing things. It's one of the, the words I'm sure that comes up in most of your interviews is the, the, the word Netflix, but looking <laughs> at how they've become disruptors yeah. um, in a very, established way of doing things makes all of us think, okay, well, how can we take a, an established, um, way of making movies and, and maybe we're changing the audience or the delivery mechanism where people are going to see the movies or the timing of, of releases. And we can look at what's in, in my purview, which is the production budget and say, okay, if the economics are this, then the movie can't be profitable or it's got a really hard chance of being that way. Well, if we change these, um, these variables, maybe, maybe it can work. So it's a lot of us on the studio side learning, you know, together. How do we, how do we change some of those assumptions to, mm. to give ourselves the best chance of, 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 making the movie a success?
0: It sounds like a lot of the decision sort of jump off point in the studios really is financially driven first and foremost and then it comes to the creative well in 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 my
1: world you know we're always looking at at the numbers and that's what we're expected to say okay um how much can we make this movie for how do we do that Mm -hmm. and when we get a green light to make the movie then we're obligated to stay on that on that path and if something changes then finding a way to make it um as viable as possible. Um, but so much happens with a particular project on the creative side long before we ever see it that um, you know, I think one of the exciting things about the the leadership changes we've had at at Paramount have been you know, focusing on titles that either appeal to everybody or appeal to somebody, and knowing which audience that a movie is for. And and then we can look at the the economics in partnership. And you're right, it's absolutely a marriage with yeah. with our creative partners, and and finding out what their their appetite is, what makes sense from an overall slate perspective, and what makes sense from um, a marketing perspective, and um, you know a franchise perspective, because there's so many franchises that you're hoping to. to to you know, nurture and you know, find new ones that can that can be um, you know, ones that have longevity to them, um, and and then for us it's supporting them and the filmmakers and saying okay, well, how do we make this the most economical and still deliver what we need to creatively?
0: Mm, interesting. So from from where you are now, it's not really a matter of a different title. Like you kind of have the highest title for where you are. It's more about. Sort of your connections and your relationships, like you were saying, and being able to develop these bigger projects and work at even for you at that next level of budget that's in the fifty million and up kind of yeah, space. Yeah, I
1: think I think I've I've made the 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 jump to to where the role is designed to to service a, a particular project, developing a production plan which includes a budget and a schedule and shooting locations and and. It, tax incentives and all of that um and seeing it through to the finish line that's a different um i guess function than i had had in previous roles mm-hmm. but as i continue to grow and as the studio uh, the production executives at other studios will find you, know, you may grow in title it may be you know vp or senior vp or evp but the what you actually do day to day really you know doesn't doesn't change
0: but in physical production at a studio are you ever really working with the other heads of the other departments and other divisions before a movie is even in production? That
1: that happens, and I can I can speak to Paramount um, specifically, and the other studios might might differ. But yeah, there are certainly conversations where physical production's involved. You know, early on, and there's a lot of senior staff meetings that that those types of conversations happen, and and production. Um, you know, input is certainly something that is taken into account, you know, early on, just as yeah. you might have uh, creative and, and um, yeah, marketing and and um, any of those other groups that that really make up what would be a green light committee at, at any, any production company or studio. Those are conversations that happen far over my head, and when we're given... Whether it's a time frame, it will be given a script and say, okay, can we make it? F- we're either backing into a particular release date or we are trying to sync up with a particular actor or director's um, availability window. Then that's where I'll start diving in.
0: Yeah. Do you find that there's a lot of discrepancy between creative expectations and true cost this this is where this is coming from my experience has been that the the people who've come up mostly through the creative side of our industry who end up as creative producer types rarely understand the cost of making something
1: (laughs) and that's where we come in
0: yeah (laughs) and and there there is a lot of
1: education and and explaining things in the right way where the the word that is always difficult to say and difficult to hear is the word no it, right. no we can't do that or we can't do that because it's really well we can't achieve this that way but we could do this instead right. and a lot of that's really just a conversation as as you go and and everybody kind of figuring out what is the best what's the best way to service the story and and still, you know, come in yeah. and
0: target. I, I've always been very curious when uh, you see in the trades, you know, oh, they, they went parted ways because of creative differences. It, I know that can be many things. Right. It's like the blanket sort of hall pass for it didn't work out. But I do wonder if there is that level of creative difference that is just true approach to story that is very different from what the studio can provide and maybe what the director wants to do. Does that happen often?
1: Well, I have been fortunate. I haven't actually um, had a project where we've um, replaced a a director for, Mm -hmm. for creative differences. Once we've gotten, um, you know, into, into filming or, or, you know, super close to it, but you know, it, it certainly can happen and everybody wants to make sure that they're on the same page when you go into production, because that really can be a an, an unrecoverable pain point if if a director is making one movie and then a studio is expecting another movie and and meeting the creative needs and managing cost is really when you might have a difference with a, of an opinion with a director is leaning on your your producers to say yeah. um, it, whether it's your line producer and your or your creative producers mm-hmm. or or both or, or really making everybody aware of okay well if we find that this is a non-negotiable. And this is this is the, the sacred cow we can't touch. Okay, then how else are we going to still stick to our schedule, stick to our number? Um, and so it might be giving up something else. And when you're making a movie that's a $5 million or $10 million, or even a $20 million movie on the studio side, it's it's something that everybody kind of knows that that's the, the type of movie we're making. It's not a $150 million movie where we have a lot of elasticity with what money we spend where. Yeah. At $5 million, everybody has to love the movie to want to participate. So how do we then hold hands and, and really see that through start to finish?
0: Well said. Well said. Thanks.
1: Well, we'll play it back and we'll see if I agree.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, have you done many interviews before? No. So this is your first mm-hmm. interview. Yeah. Is your first podcast.
1: Yes. First, first voice interview, I guess. I
0: keep finding more and more as I do these that most people I sit and talk to have never been interviewed. I've never shared their stories, which for me is very exciting because I have exclusive interviews all over the place. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) But um, but with the amount of focus that is put on the creative side of our business, but producing is still this very sort of elusive, amorphous, mysterious thing, Mm -hmm. even within our own industry, which is why I've been really enjoying doing these interviews and hope that the people who listen and get something out of it can learn and be a little bit, uh, can be demystify, mm-hmm. demystify the process right. a little bit for right. them and, and all the differences between all of us.
1: In trying to explain physical production to folks that either aren't in the industry or aren't really touching production, the physical production executive at a studio, that person's best friend and the their most direct counterpart is the line producer. And so that's one of the first people that we'll hire when we're looking to to figure out can we make a movie for a price, or can yeah. we make it at all. You know, we'll hire that line producer, and we'll do a, a a shooting schedule, a really rough shooting schedule, and a and a budget. And um, then maybe we get a green light. And so they're the that first person that we're putting in charge to ramp up the movie. So while I'm the representative of the studio, making sure that the the movie is on target and stays on target. The line producer is the one that is the representative of of the production to make sure they stay on budget and stay on target. Absolutely.
0: Well, take me back to the beginning of your career.
1: Well, it was, let's say, it was October 26,
0: 2005.
1: That's very specific. Yeah. that's sometime around that week. I graduated from college in 2005 with a degree in English you can imagine all of the natural decisions that went into my applying for consulting and in investment banking jobs. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> you know, it's, what else am I going to do with an English degree? My wife will hear this, this podcast and roll her eyes because she's heard me tell the story probably this way thousands of times. (laughs) But I'm going to tell it that way again, because I'm practiced at it. So (laughs) I was with a number of friends after doing some consulting and banking jobs. And I realized in the middle of one of those interviews that I just was not interested in or really qualified for any of those. So talking with a couple of friends and and one of them said, well, you know what, you did a bunch of theater in college. What about movies? Would you want to do that?
0: Were you a performer?
1: No. Uh, um, I was a tech director, stage manager, lighting designer, and Mm -hmm. So, in fact, it's really a natural uh, progression from, from that to physical production in film. There was a, a friend of mine who was a few years older, and he had written a production of The, the Hasty Puddings. Uh, the, the Hasty Pudding was the, the theater company that I spent most of my time in in college. And it's a until this year was an all-male drag show. Um, but now it's a an all gender drag show.
0: Love it. At, Love yeah, it. Yeah,
1: exactly. And as Melissa McCarthy showed us with her impressions of Sean Spicer. It can be just, as hilarious, just as, as hilarious as anything else. Yeah. So I'm very <laughs> excited for that. But um, this uh, friend said, "Hey, why don't you reach out to Mike? He's out in LA. He's producing this movie, and it's a little independent thing. Why don't you let him know you're looking?" And I was like, "Oh man, I've never thought about LA, but okay, that could be cool." So I shot him an email, and I think that was on a Tuesday. He responded the next the next day and said, "If you're serious about coming to LA, there's a job here waiting for you." Was in Chicago at the time, was where I'm originally from. Threw my stuff in a car, drove out, got to LA on. Uh, Saturday night, found a sublet on Sunday. Spent Monday at Cedar Sinai Hospital, which is another fun side side tangent. <laughs> started work on Tuesday. the uh, The movie was Waitress, and the producer was Michael Reif, Michael who we both Roy. know. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it was the honest to god best film education I could possibly have. And the crew. So I was a production assistant. Um, set um, well, I, I started in the office mm-hmm. and then moved to set. And so was able to experience both. And I think on my second day I was in charge of product placement and script clearances and things. That I didn't even know what they were the week before. That's an indie when, movie for it you. Right is. And when you were dealing with budgets that low, everybody's wearing so many hats. Yeah. And it's the best. It it really is. Is. I, I got to learn so much so fast. And okay. it was a movie that I think everybody was excited to work on that particular script. It was something that, as of so many people who have seen it on Broadway now and um, have, have you know watched the movie, and it's crazy to think it's been...
0: 12 years. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: It's been a while. Yeah. Um, but there was something so special about it. Everybody from Carrie Russell to Andy Griffith and Nathan Fillion and Jeremy Sisto and everybody, they were all in it for what felt like great reasons. I mean, they... I don't know the reasons for, for all of them, but yeah. I felt like those... First couple days, I was very overwhelmed. I think I was given six tasks, and I dropped the ball on five of them. At one point, I feel someone rubbing my shoulders. I, like, excuse myself, and I stepped away. I was like, I I can't. I can't even deal with this. Um, I just need a a quick minute. I feel someone start to rub my shoulders, and it's Carrie Russell. And she says, it's okay. We're making a movie. No one's going to die. You're doing great. And the fact that the most recognizable person on this movie thought enough to say to a PA, hey, you're doing okay— has stuck with me for 13 years. Yeah. It was so exciting to then build such great relationships with those those crew, and I was able to then snowball that into other experiences. And I um, freelanced for the next year or so. The movie that was really the transition for me was. A movie called Mama's Boy.
0: And and at this point, were you coordinating? Where were you sort of in So the... at
1: this point I was still a production assistant. Okay. I had been put up for a a job, I didn't get it because of a political hire. They passed my resume next door. They said, Oh, there's another production gearing up in the same building. They gave me a call and said, Hey, we want to bring you in as a PA and I said which is probably a little bit with a little bit more gumption than I would have had in, in retrospect, but I said, Well, I've really done the PA thing and I'm I'm ready to move up. Do you have anything else? And <laughs> I mean probably a little more uh aggressive than I should have been but they said you know what we just lost our production secretary and someone took a chance on me so we'll take a chance on you the line producer of that movie um actually was a production executive at Warner brothers and so when the movie wrapped um he said hey I'm losing my trainee would you want to come in house and that of course I had driven by the warner brothers lot so many times and yeah. saw the the wall and said, oh, I'd love to see what's on the other side of it. And so having that opportunity was just, you know, I didn't have to think about it at all. I said, okay, you tell me what day and I'm there. Then I started in the Warner Brothers trainee program. And some of the studios have programs like that and some of them don't, but... It's a program designed for to last about one to two years, and for people to to come in experience physical production. It's you know very heavily admin, but you get exposed to all of it from the studio side. And so I did that for um, I think it was about six months, and was then able to make the jump to coordinator. It was a two year stint. Then I took a took a little sabbatical to try my hand at creative, and then came back into physical production. And what I will say, I tip my hat to anybody who who is able to have a career in development and stick with it. It For me, <laughs> Why? it, for me, it was, it was a square peg round hole situation. And, mm. and the support that I had uh, in that time was great, but I wasn't doing the things that you have to do to be successful in, in that field. I Which wasn't, what? I wasn't reading every sample script I could get my hands on. I wasn't, reading the spec scripts that were coming out in two hours and getting my notes to the producer. I wasn't watching director reels and internalizing the list. So if someone said to me, hey, we have this new movie coming in, who would you put on it to do a rewrite? Or who would you put on it to direct? But because I had an English degree and felt like creative development was really where I ought to be, it was great to learn that no, actually, I enjoyed physical production in a way that I didn't appreciate before trying development. I think that is really what kind of you know, propelled me forward since yeah. then. And I was in that role for about two years and I had a good opportunity to come over to Paramount and learn a different way of doing things. Paramount did have a great track record of promoting people within. And so I said, OK, that's what I'm that's what I'm looking for. And when it's it's been a great, great experience since I'm coming up on five years in two weeks.
0: I like that you look at your watch. (laughs) Well, I forgot what day it was. What year is it? 2019. 2019. Yeah, this is my first interview of 2019, actually. So setting the tone for a good year, (laughs) for sure. Yes, indeed. That's incredible. I mean, it sounds like, you know, you've had the the loving hand of support of a few people along the way. And Mm -hmm. it's interesting because we... We talk a lot about... Um, sometimes it, it, mentorship comes in small nuggets. The story you told about Carrie Russell and sometimes those little nudges and encouragements just from where you least expect it is enough at a moment in time to, to keep you going.
1: And I think there are ways to be mentored and be a mentor without having to really disrupt the normal flow of what needs to happen. As somebody who was looking to to make the next leap... It would be saying to my boss, hey, I know that so-and-so is coming in for a meeting related to filming in this location, or you guys are going to do a cost report meeting. Can I sit in on that? Then it's easy to say, hey, that one point in the cost report you guys were discussing, that's confusing to me because can you explain it? Right. That's a very specific, easy way for a supervisor to say, oh, yeah, well, it's because of this. On the flip side, as somebody who I hope now has something to teach people that are still coming up is trying to include people wherever I can. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of my initial education was learning how not to do something as opposed to learning the right way to yeah. do it. And there is a lot of value in that. And I will say I've had very very good luck with finding people who have supported me and invested in me over the years and and I'm I'm so grateful and I think it's how I've been able to stay in in the business. You know, a lot of people who get that LA dream story and they come from somewhere in the Midwest and come out here yeah. and in a couple years years, burnout, absolutely had those moments where I felt like, okay, yep, this is it. I'm, I'm, I'm at that point, but.
0: So what did you do when you were at those points? What kept you going?
1: Um, that's a really good question. I think the, the, that hardest point was especially when I was in development because it just, wasn't the right fit for me day to day. My interest wasn't there. My curiosity wasn't there. Mm. And, you know, it was a high-pressure situation because unlike being staffed at the studio in physical production, in my current role, one out of every five or six scripts that I read actually gets made. That's a really good number. When you're in development, one out of every couple hundred scripts you read might get made, if you're lucky. The other thing was I, I kept those relationships fresh, while even while I wasn't necessarily in physical production it was still talking to line producers and production executives that were important to me when i was in that role and being able to say i need to vent i need to talk through these you know questions that i have about my my trajectory and and that's another place where mentorship comes into play but it's it's not necessarily just you know, leaning on them when i when i need something but but just, yeah keeping those relationships open and yeah. i think that helped me get through it and and also then ultimately Realign my realign re, yeah
0: one of the things I always say to people is, like develop the relationships with the people that you like that you naturally gravitate towards because people are always shifting around so much in this industry that those relationships are going to be so strong that no matter where people end up, you'll always have someone who's got your back yeah
1: and and I think even even when I felt like you know i'm not I'm not being my best self when i was when I was in development, it's a small industry and I made sure to know that okay, no matter how this ends up, that I leave with those relationships intact, mm-hmm. be honest and upfront, and and do right by everybody that I was working with too, so that when we inevitably cross paths in the future, and we all have, there is that positive you know feeling. There. Yeah.
0: How do you feel that this business has defined you? In being able to spend thirteen
1: years in it now, I think it's given me. Perspective on on those priorities in my life, and we were talking before we turned the the, the recorder on about you know, what did I used to do with all the time that I used to have. I felt like I was so busy and didn't have time for anything, and now I've got two kids, and, and now I really don't have time for for much of anything. But I think in being in this in this industry, where you see a lot of people having to balance, okay, how do I make a family work if I'm on the road all the time? If I'm a line producer and I'm going to be in Any number of places for nine months at a time, having been able to be here at the studio allowed me to be a family man and still be able to be very committed to to my work, you know, talking about those those times when you would go out to drinks because you felt like you needed to or you were just starting to build that Rolodex. And for all our millennials watching or listening, a Rolodex <laughs> is what used to be your, your not digital address book. They um, should bring that back. It'll be like should. the vinyls.
0: Yeah, exactly. Like how vinyls are cool now. Rolodex, yeah. that's the new thing. I'm calling it Yeah, there'll be whole stores just dedicated <laughs> to
1: different Rolodexes. And, yeah. But, but I think it's being able to be more selective with those relationships that you do nurture and not feeling like you have to say yes to everything. My advice for people who are just starting out has always been say yes to everything, try it, see if you like it, build those relationships because that, that director who's making that short movie might turn out to be somebody that you really click with. And then maybe you become the next big you know production team early on. I, I think that's, that's great use of your time. And as I've gotten older and, and been doing it long enough, it's okay. Well, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't have to do that right. as much anymore. And, and I'm able to find a way to be home at bedtime. The, blessing and the curse of technology is that we're always reachable all the time but it's also nice to be able to say gonna be doing bedtime and i'll log back in when i you know when i can and and that's that's been one of the benefits of being at the studio and i realized that not everybody in in the production world has that luxury and yeah another kind of retrospective on the trajectory i've taken in my career is i do wish i had spent a little bit more time freelancing before coming in-house you know no complaints.
0: Yeah, it's like the, the the passing ship in the night, you know, you'll never know what was on the other side of a, of a, of a choice, of an option. Exactly. There's this thing that It's a FOBO, Fear of Better Options. It's a new thing. Have you heard that? <laughs> no, I haven't. It's the new FOMO. <laughs> yeah. It's FOBO.
1: Have you heard of uh, JOMO?
0: I've heard of uh, JOMO, yeah. which I love that. I
1: get that now all the time.
0: I love that. Yeah. Yeah, I, that doesn't bother me <laughs> at all. I'm all about it. Dude, JOMO, well, everybody listening is probably a millennial, so they'll know what, yeah. what it means. But it's joy of missing out. It's just being happy with the choice that you have made to commit to whatever the thing is you were doing, yep. which is a wonderful thing. I, I hope is. we do more of that. Um, what do you think are the biggest misconceptions that people have about producing in general, producers? Now, of course, you have a different take on this because you are in studio. Right. But uh, I've, I ask this question of everybody who comes on the show and it's, oh, it's always really fascinating. Answers.
1: The biggest misconception. I think, I think it's that we're only concerned about the numbers. And yes, that plays a big part of it, but I just as much as anybody want to make sure that we have the best movie that we can.
0: Yeah. How has the Netflix model and streaming shifted things internally for studios from what you've observed?
1: Um I think one of the challenges is that because Netflix in particular and some of the other companies that are are um creating content original content on their own now they're they're growing at such a rapid rate that it pushes a hundred plus year old company like paramount to say okay well the landscape is changing we're still going to be competitive and it might take a little bit longer to change course with a cruise ship sized boat as opposed to you know, something smaller and more nimble, but like a raft. It, yeah, ex- exactly. <laughs> uh, the, the Netflix dinghy that's, that's, you know, Just changing a on dinghy. a yeah. Yeah, um, dinghy. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a powerful speedboat, but they're, they're moving fast and Paramount is already in, um, has a, a deal with, with Netflix to, to release a number of movies exclusively there. And, and I think the great part about that is it means that maybe there's a movie that is better served, better watched, when it can be viewed that way, and and Netflix is yeah. reaching audiences in ways that the the traditional distribution methods necessarily haven't been able to. I mean, I'm a father of two, and the la- I think I've seen three movies in the theater in the last year or two, and it's a shame when that's that's my you know my livelihood. But, um, you know, we had to spend so much planning and money and and effort to just go out and see a Star Is Born which is amazing because I touched it 10 years ago when oh, wow. I was at Warner Brothers and now mm-hmm. to see what it what it became. And it's it's a, you know, an amazing, amazing movie. And for someone who would be better served by movies coming out directly onto my screen at home, there there is a place for that and, and there's an audience for it. So it doesn't necessarily mean that everything should come out that way or that everything should come out in the theater. But the fact that we're looking at ways to to kind of serve all audiences, I think is a really encouraging thing. And, and on the production side, it's made us just have to look at yeah. the model and, and change it up. And I think that is really worthwhile to, to stay, stay competitive. Yeah. I, I think what our Netflix of the world have taught us is that you have to be thinking outside the box and have to be looking at other ways to, you know, to, to make that like yeah. that, you know, uh, profitable
0: you know the 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 communal experience has sort of gone, and people go to the movies for an event like Star Wars for something that they're very much looking forward to. It isn't yeah. just like a yeah,
1: well, and I think to go back to the Wars point, I think one of the things that was the most exciting about the way that that movie performed, and there are many others too, but you know it's not a it's not a big ten pole, it's not a superhero movie, there aren't crazy visual effects it's it's a great story with great performances, great music and there, People were talking about it yeah. and that was exciting. I think the same way that the Harry Potter books 20 years ago got people excited about reading and you'd have these long lines outside bookstores, which seemed like uh, an impossibility before those those books had come out. I think there are those movies that can, can be that draw. that don't have to be a $200 million movie yeah. um, and still get people talking about it.
0: So you already gave some advice to the people listening earlier, which is to say yes to everything. More specifically is if somebody is looking to go the studio route, what advice would you give for someone who's got that specific vision in mind?
1: Um, I think, you know, one of the hardest parts is the, it's the the chicken and egg problem of, okay, well, how do you, how do you get in until you know somebody? And, And just like any company, sending your resume in to the, you know, the ether online of, a lot of times doesn't really, you know, kind of pan out for, for folks that are either currently in production or, um, you know, have connections within the industry is certainly, I think, worth reaching out to. And, and I, I will, I'll say this for executives and assistants too, is reaching out to anybody at the studio that, that, you know, and, and building a relationship there because so often when, when jobs do open up, you always think first, Oh, who do we know that is interested in coming in house? Um, for folks that don't have those kind of connections, I mean, it's it's a little trickier. But but I think if you have the the interest and the means to become a PA, get into production, you know, look at any of the the you know job boards or or with film commissions too, and checking what productions are filming in certain areas the challenge for a lot of people who don't live in LA is, well, I would never come into contact with the studio when they're in Los Angeles or maybe they've got a presence in New York, but otherwise generally aren't, yeah. aren't, uh, you know, local. Yeah. But if you check with your local film office, they know who's filming in town or who's interested in filming in town. And then you're going to be able to find a contact at that production a little bit more easily. The worst that they'll do is just ignore it. And, maybe you get someone that says, Hey, we'll someone you took a shot. chance on me. Yeah. I'll take a, take a chance on you.
0: Yeah. I love that. How, so how would you define, uh, what you do?
1: What I do, what a production executive does is set a production plan and stick to it. That's the, the simplest way to put it. And it's working with our creative partners at the studio with the creative producers and director, um, on a project setting a a budget setting, a schedule, finding your shooting locations. And, and in that, I mean, are we going to shoot the Baghdad movie? Are we going to shoot it in New Mexico? Or are we going to go to Jordan? Or are we going to rescript it? And now it's set in somewhere, Tunisia. Okay, well, we're going to shoot that in Morocco, wherever we're going to go. Um, finding out where, what the footprint of the movie is going to be. And then hiring hiring crew and making sure as we go that we're staying on budget and staying on schedule.
0: So how is that different from a producer or is it the same?
1: So, so this goes back to I'm the representative of the studio with those objectives, the producer and the line producer are the people that are representing the production that have those same objectives. So we're working in, in tandem and and because I'll have a slate of, or the the studio has a big slate overall, but I might have a handful of projects that, in production or in development and, and we're in the budgeting phase or in post-production and we're managing reshoots or whatever mm. it happens to be, you know, I'm touching a number of projects. Those folks are often touching just that project. And, you know, Bruce may have other stuff and certainly we'll have other stuff in development, but, um, you know, those folks are, are all in on that project that at that time. Um, so our touch is a little bit, maybe the 30,000 foot view, as opposed to being as in the weeds, but, but so much of it is problem solving with the line producer and, um, you know, at, seeing challenges as they come, you know, mm-hmm. potential pitfalls coming down the road and it's dealing with everything from, you know, changes in actor availability or, um, hurricanes. I mean, a lot of times we're shooting in New Orleans or Atlanta and <laughs> hurricanes are a big, you know, a big, uh, factor in the, in the fall, or maybe it's, um, Accidents that happen on set, or right. stunt safety, or um, you know any of those number of things, we're working so closely with the line producer, but it's it's all at, you know toward the same goal. Yeah,
0: it sounds like the difference is just the title, really.
1: Every producer will probably have a different opinion on it, of course. So I will certainly acknowledge when you know the, the producers will will disagree that the studio folks may not be inv- invested in the same way. There's so much that happens that in in the production office and on the ground that i'm sure we don't even know about because yeah. the right if you if you get the right line producer and the right production manager um and uh, you know a director is really involved in the right ways and you have a producer there that's you know being uh you know really really present we there's a lot of stuff that gets solved that we don't ever even you know yeah. even see
0: Yeah, absolutely. Everything you've described to me and how I understand Mm -hmm. producing is exactly the same. I don't think that physical presence necessarily equates to contribution to a project. There's been a lot of people I've worked with that are there physically mm-hmm. but are dead weight right and aren't, oh, okay. aren't contributing you anything those, you know yeah. so it's, yeah. it's like well I'd rather have someone who's off-site he's going to call me 12 times a day and check in and yeah. see how they can support me yeah. than you know
1: yeah and, and there are a lot of people that I mean I'm 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 one of the cases where I came up in-house through the majority of my career but there are a lot of production executives at studios that were line producers or production managers before coming in house. And right. so the skill sets the same. There's a handful of people that are currently production executives who can also line produce while they're doing that. They'll have, um, you know, the arrangements where they, they're able to do that. The, the biggest challenge to it, I would say is if you're in a studio going outward, um, there's just the, the DGA question of, um, can you be a production manager? If you, if, you know have you gotten your your days um uh, or or did you come in-house as a dga member or right. maybe you're limited to just line producing which isn't you know a covered position so that's that's the i guess the biggest hurdle when someone who's grown up in the studio system to go outward but right. you know there's there's enough movies where you've got a separate line producer and production manager that yes that it's okay
0: Yes. Not any movie I've worked on. Everything <laughs> I've worked on, it's always the same person wearing yeah. both hats, yeah. getting paid one fee. Yep. So, yeah, there's a lot of that, yeah. And Matt with one T.
1: I know. Well, Why okay. That? Here's the other advice that I would give to anybody is when you're setting out in your career, know what your name is and stick with it. I made the mistake. So mm. I met I'm Matthew with one T because my parents liked the name Matthew and didn't really like Matt. So they said, my dad said, well, if you, if we pull one T out, people won't shorten it because they won't know how to shorten it. So it'll be (laughs) Matthew. Well, of course that didn't work. So all through school I was Matt or Ferrante or, you know, whatever, whatever, it just was not Matthew. So I got out here and on that first movie, because my email address I had, I think, I think Matt was taken. So I, just went with Matthew, you know, as part of my email address, and so um, everybody addressed me as Matthew. And I was like, you know, I kind of like that. It sounds professional, and it's, um, it, yeah, it's. It was too late to correct them at that point, and I was like, <laughs> oh, great, Matthew, it is. This is perfect. I'm, I'm a, I'm a grown up now. Yeah. <laughs> well, I have all my friends that called me Matt. I have my, I met my wife. She calls me Matt, but now everybody in my work circles calls me Matthew, and so now I have this, this like. Some people call me Matthew, some people call me Matt and and that, and I don't get email because it's just one T and you know, my parents thirty something years ago couldn't foresee email. And if they did, they wait, do your parents be ever
0: call you Matt then? Never. 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 They hate it. So when people yeah. call you Matt, they're like, ugh, this is the thing I'm we sure, try to avoid. I'm sure, So what do you prefer?
1: <sighs> I wish you wouldn't ask that. <laughs> <laughs> well, it depends how I've known people. Like it's weird when my wife calls me Matthew, but like it's weird if like my closest work friends call me Matt. So however I've introduced myself, that's the way to go.
0: Interesting. Okay. All right. So I think we're wrapping up. If there's anything that you feel like you may have wanted to share and didn't or any like other nuggets.
1: I don't know if this is going to be interesting for listeners, but like we didn't really talk too much about tax incentives, but Mm. that's so much of what, what we do. Um, So one of the other roles of a production executive, and this is really done in close context, concert with our finance departments is is when we ask the question where are we going to shoot something, it's so often related to where do where are there tax incentives yeah. um, that can help make the movie make more economic sense. So the first question we'll ask is, okay, creatively what areas can we look at? Um, then there is the question of is there infrastructure there? Um, is there crew is there equipment or do we have to travel a lot of stuff people and things in and the third is is there a tax incentive and for people who may be familiar with where movies have shot mostly recently you have a lot of centers that are the common denominators it's atlanta it's new orleans it's london it's vancouver toronto Mm -hmm. um uh, australia new zealand um south africa there's a lot of places that that are kind of the common common ground where where a lot of pressures will go and a lot of that is because there are local tax incentives and stability is a really important factor in it and we will look to see okay the uk has had a a very favorable incentive for a very long time and there isn't necessarily the the risk of that changing so london is a place that is a very frequent place for productions to go availability becomes the biggest question of right are there stages can you get into the stages and can you afford can, the stages yeah and can you get a crew right um you know some of the other areas have seen incentive that had great incentives have seen them dry up um you know michigan had a really great incentive and and the go- government there at the state level decided not to not to renew it and and the production there has virtually dried up and it's really sad to see. And a lot of the crews that were there have gone elsewhere to, to find work. But so that's one of the, the questions that this, the production executives will ask early on is as the, as we figure out the footprint, where will we shoot this? What, what kind of tax incentive implications are there? A perfect example of one was um, a movie that came out uh, this past summer uh Action Point was, um, a John and Oswald project that we, that we had. And it was about a crazy amusement park in the late seventies, early eighties. And we were looking for an amusement park that we could do some wacky stunts on. And there were two ways to do it. Either we find a park that we can modify or we build it from scratch. And no matter how we, how we cut it, we couldn't find the economics just didn't quite work. And that was even after getting, um, you know, tax credit money elsewhere. And we said, okay, well, where will it be cheap enough to, to build a park from scratch and still kind of take all these creative boxes. And we went down to South Africa. So it was going 12,000 miles to make it look like California. And, <laughs> you know, in the end it, it did work economically. And, um, you know, so, so those are the kind of questions that, that we'll also ask early on.
0: Yeah. No, that's really interesting. Thank you for breaking that down. Business has changed so much that the -hmm. the revenue streams are not there like they used to be. So you have to make really big concessions for that. And that is the cost is you have to go where the money, the dollar is going to stretch further. So Mm -hmm. I get that. I respect that. Yeah. Yeah. So the last question I have for you before you depart us, and you can think about this one for a second. What do you wish to be your legacy? In this industry, 25 years from now, when you're getting your lifetime achievement award. Yeah. Um, I think it's
1: teaching. And Mm -hmm. what I would like to, to see is looking back 25 years from now is looking at the people that might say, oh, I learned a lot from him. And... To go through it and realize okay, I've benefited. I mean, some of my other positions that have had, let's say, there were you know a, a number of other trainees. I felt like I was getting a great experience because I had someone showing me how to break down a script and do an initial schedule, and I was getting to do things that weren't a given they weren't in the job description but i had somebody that was mentoring me and really taking the time to teach me and if i can do that for one pe- one person or two people or or more i think that's that's what i would love for people who know me to say you know when it's you know, when it's all done uh, <laughs> um and and you know, to make some good movies in the in the process i think yeah. Um, there's a lot of things that we have coming on the pipeline that I'm very excited about and, and you know, hope they can be as um, as widely talked about as, as you know, some of those other ones that are as the star now. is born Exactly. <laughs> yeah.
0: Exactly. I don't see why not. Well, thank yeah. you so much. this is really awesome I, had a great time. I really appreciate it. And that's this week's episode. Thank you so much for tuning in week after week and doing this life thing with me. I'm so grateful you're here. Would love to hear what you thought of this week's episode, what your takeaways were. It was great to hear from a male executive that it's a priority for him to make it home in time to put his daughters to bed. Wouldn't you agree? If you like the show, please tell a friend, tag a friend, share. And of course, if you don't already, please subscribe, rate, review, comment, wherever it is that you get your podcasts. I'll see you next week. Beijos.